you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. I'm excited to have Kevin back this month. We've all recovered from our big conference, and we're ready to roll. So, Kevin, what are you going to be talking about? Today is a bit of the community emerge docs white whale, as we call it, because we're always thinking it, and it rarely turns out to be the case until it does. And that case is intussusception. And so what I'd like to do is introduce a case, um, a real case that I saw myself in practice recently, take you through a little bit of the clinical reasoning behind why I worried about intussusception and what we uh, ultimately ended up doing about background to this one is uh, an eight-month-old female was brought in by her parents essentially for vomiting and for those of us that work in primary care like that is a very common presentation in children vomiting well-looking children but uh, my differential diagnosis for vomiting is pretty big in children think about everything from raised intracranial pressure uh, non-accidental injury to uh, metabolic disorders DKA, and then of course the usual abdominal things like intussusception, appendicitis, uh, ovarian torsion, etc. But in this case, again, we were in the middle of uh, gastroenteritis season, um, so every every kid is vomiting, and so I brought in my resident to, to see first, and then I followed uh, later, but essentially this was an eight-month-old female brought in by the parents for vomiting that started uh, earlier in the day, but seemed to be happening fairly often. And it mostly just seemed to be this little one's uh, milk. She was bottle fed, was just spitting up her milk, but didn't seem to keep much down. Uh, she was too old for the classic, uh, you know, concerns about pyloric stenosis and projectile vomiting. And every parent, and believe me, I remember those days with my kids, uh, every vomit that they launch seems like it's projectile. But at any rate, we went further along and, and found out that the child seemed to be fussy as I went in there uh, and, you know, assessed her. And then she seemed to be better. And I'm always very, very cautious in using the term gastroenteritis or even putting that term in my head, even saying the words to the parents or saying stomach flu. I rarely will ever say it until I get the triad of vomiting diarrhea and fever and in this case this child clearly had the vomiting but was missing the other stuff no fever and no diarrhea but otherwise appeared well was happy and smiling but then had intermittent episodes of fussiness um, but not a true irritability or anything like that at all so I kept assessing and reassessing and I examined her abdomen and she seemed just fine. You know, the parents were very reliable and I was thinking about possible discharge with very close follow-up. So sometimes I'll even get them to come back the next day or uh, get them seen at at the pediatric hospital. But there was just something about the fussiness that sort of tipped me off to this child and, and me beginning to wonder about the white whale as we joke about it in community emergency medicine is could this eight-month-old infant actually be manifesting um, early signs of intussusception? So I did end up call before I sent the parents home, I did end up calling, calling the pediatric emergency department that we have a great working relationship with. 
and Spoken has shared the story and, you know, they deal with a lot of vomiting and diarrhea and stomach flu during, you know, stomach flu season. So they were less concerned than I was and, you know, it's reasonable they're not seeing the patient in front of me. But they did say, you know what, you should probably order some plain films and, and just watch for a bit. Um, so I did watch, um, but as I went to uh, do the digital rectal examination where we test a little bit of stool for blood, as I removed the diaper, this child actually launched a bloody stool, just sort of blood just squirted out the backside, which, you know, having changed thousands of diapers in my own parenting career <laughs> was not something that I'd ever seen, let alone my clinical practice. And at that point, I became more concerned. And by you know, the time we got the plain films back showing um, some kind of obstructive process, rarely can see true intussusception on x-ray, we agreed to transfer the patient to the pediatric hospital, where sure enough, on ultrasound, uh, she was confirmed to have intussusception, did not reduce um, with air enema, and was sent for an OR. For me, it was a wake-up call that, yeah, you know, everything is a viral illness, everything is a cold until it's not. Everything is stomach flu until it's not. And that I think is where, you know, our skill as frontline physicians really tested, right? It's easy when the diagnosis is obvious. You know, when somebody is, you know, the right cardiovascular risk profile and they're clutching their chest saying it feels like there's an elephant sitting on them, it's easy to diagnose a STEMI. But, but it's when it's a subtler presentation, it's an earlier presentation, um, that you really do your patients a service by catching it early. So with that, I thought I would lead off on um, a brief overview of intussusception. This is by no means an extensive review of intussusception. We will we will not be using the terms. And here I, I got to go find I got to go find the the terms. One second here. There are some very fancy terms associated with intussusception. So we will not be going in and elaborating on the intussusceptum versus the intussuscepciens. I'm sorry, my French is not as good as yours, Dimitri. Did I get that right, intussusceptiens? I don't know. <laughs> uh, nor will we be covering all of the different sites, iliocolic, ilio-ilio, ilio-iliocolic, jujinal, jujinal, jujinal-ilio, colocolic. So we won't be going into all of those, but don't say we didn't mention them because they actually all got mentioned. Uh, the bottom line is, is that for us, I think it's as frontline practitioners, it's far less important that we know these what I call uh, uh, tricky terms. More important that we simply recognize that this uh, diagnosis is out there and that we shouldn't be calling it all appendicitis or gastroenteritis or UTI in that vomiting, uncomfortable uh, child. So let me move on a bit of a review about intussusception, which again, as I stressed, is not going to be at any great depth. The bottom line is that intussusception is primarily a disease of childhood. It's most often caused by an idiopathic process, so bad luck. Sometimes it is tied to a viral infection or HSP or, you know, immunizations and these various things. Um, but by and large, you shouldn't be looking for concurrent illness. We're looking for intussusception uh, or expecting, I should say, a concurrent illness to occur with the intussusception. Uh, like this child that I highlighted in the opening case, uh, it happened out of the blue. 
the typical age is three months to 36 months. And this is where it gets tricky. So we know that older children up until school age and even the age of 10 can get intussusception. We know it rarely occurs in adults as well. Um, but older children are far better at telling you what's going on in them. I remember when I was in my first few months of practice, I picked up intussusception in like a five-year-old or four-year-old who literally just went limp like a rag doll from time to time throughout the day over the previous 24 hours. Um, and But was able to clearly at that age tell me that she was having pain. But in a three-month-old, you're not going to get that. Anyone who's you know been around lots of children knows that they always seem to be, quote, colicky. They always seem to be crampy or uncomfortable and they always seem to be fussy and crying. And my goodness, do they always seem to be spitting up. So that's where it gets really tricky. And that's where I put a lot of weight on what the parents are telling me, right? So when I get parents to say, this isn't normal for my child, that in and of itself is a red flag. I stop and I do a very thorough assessment based on that presenting um, issue. Just this, my child's not right. My child's abnormal. There's something going on with her, him. And maybe there isn't ultimately, but I take those statements very, very seriously from the parents. So the typical age range is three months to 36 months. So again, three-year-olds are not going to tell you a lot. They're not going to tell their parents a lot. But so while your radar may be on for those age groups, uh, you still have to include it in older, you still have to include intussusception in your differential diagnosis of older children presenting with abdominal pain. I'd like to emphasize that although it's difficult to catch and a lot of providers will miss it on first presentation and it's maybe a second bounce back or a third bounce back, that doesn't mean that it isn't a very serious condition. So one of the, you know, problems with intussusception is that it progresses from being an obstructive process to an ischemic process to bowel perforation and, you know, life-threatening abdominal sepsis surgery. Um, so these children are at risk of bad morbidity and mortality um, as a result of delayed diagnosis. So it behooves us to be a little bit like Captain Ahab, always hunting that white whale, even though there are so many false calls along the way. The classic presentation, so we covered who gets it and what it looks like and why is it important. Oh, speaking of uh, that age group, my two-year-old's trying to break into the office to help me with the podcast. And here she is. Hi, sweetie. So, classic presentation is intermittent, colicky, cramping abdominal pain that goes away. And it's not unusual for there to be complete resolution between episodes. And that was the earlier case, the, the second case I alluded to in the, in, um, the older ch- was uh, that. So it's of intermittent abdominal pain, but then otherwise happy and comfortable. But what you'll often hear from the parents is not complaints of abdominal pain, but the child seems to be bringing his or her knees up to their chest in spasms of pain, or that they're just irritable and fussy, not settling properly. And when the vomiting does occur, it's often non-bilious at first. So it's going to be food, it's going to be milk, stomach contents, but it's not going to be true green, dark green bilious vomiting. As things progress, however, that bilious vomiting goes and becomes the true green. And at that point, I'm hoping most of us recognize bilious vomiting, regardless of the cause, is a medical emergency and needs to be dealt with. On examination, you may find very, very little. And that, again, is where your clinical suspicion based on the history 
uh, and the presence or absence of certain symptoms is going to guide you, not the physical examination. Because if you're touching them in a period where they're pain-free, that exam examination of the abdomen is going to be entirely benign. Obviously, when you're examining a child, you're looking for other findings to suggest an alternative diagnosis, whether it's findings for appendicitis or an intracranial process or something along those lines for a differential diagnosis or Kuzma's breathing if they're TK or whatever. But the classic, if you want to call it that, abdominal finding is a sausage-like mass in the right abdomen of the patient. You may also note that she or he is uh, lethargic. And again, you know, that term is thrown around a lot. True lethargy is a is an infant uh, or child that rarely or, you know, barely flinches to the medical examiner or any procedure. So the last part of the physical examination, and again, this requires some communication with the parents, is a testing of the stool. So if you can get some stool from the diaper and test it for blood, that might be reasonable. But if you can just get a small uh, stool sample from the rectum, um, you know, that's ideal. And what you're testing for is either gross blood on inspection or positive fecal occult blood testing on the strip. And the reason that that's done is that up to 85% of cases of intussusception are accompanied by blood. Um, so it, again, will help you piece the puzzle together. No one finding is going to tell you that you're dealing with intussusception, you know, the sausage-like mass in the right abdomen, the blood. It's a constellation of the history and physical that leads you to pick up the phone and either get that imaging that you need or speak to a pediatric consultant to move forward on the diagnostic pathway. And then as far as typical community-based testing goes, most of us only have access to, to plain films. To pediatric ultrasound, especially for intussusception, can be quite tricky, and you may not find a radiologist willing or comfortable to do this uh, in a community site. But you are going to start with plain films, and you're looking for anything really gross. You know, bowel dilatation, you know, maybe, you know, the classic signs on, on x-ray. But beyond those obvious findings, you know, you're really just trying to make sure there's nothing else going on there. Uh, one time I did plain films on a vomiting child, and it turned out that this little one had swallowed a whole bracelet of ring magnets. So there's all sorts of things um, that could be lurking on plain films. But don't be surprised if on your intussusception series, your dedicated x-rays for intussusception, that they're all normal. The sensitivity for plain films is similar to sensitivity in all things in medicine that involve the history of the physical. They're low. It's rare. So again, if you're worried, your real test is going to be ultrasound. And this is where they're looking for the target sign. And, and I'm not going to go into all of the findings, but the bottom line is, is that the true one and done test for intussusception is ultrasound, and it's often got to be done at a pediatric site or done by a pediatric radiologist who's comfortable with it. And then following that, when the diagnosis is confirmed, so in the case of this eight-month-old, um, ultrasound was done, and then they attempted to reduce the intussusception, intussusceptum, intussusceptiens. Am I getting that right? I can't remember which term I'm supposed to use. Yeah, so I have practiced this while you were talking. Oh, it's okay, the good. intussusceptiens. Oh, 
very sophisticated. Dimitri was raised in Montreal and is thankfully uh, fluently bilingual. I am not, as evidenced by my thick Alberta accent. The bottom line is, is that whatever it is, is fixed <laughs> by um, either air enema or saline enema. So this was actually discovered in the Victorian area when they were quite big on the enemas, cure-all to everything. But if that does not work, so to reduce the telescoping of the bowel, because that's essentially what it intussusception is, then the child's taken uh, for an OR uh, where the intussusception is reduced under surgery. So let me wrap it up. Any questions though before I proceed to that, Dimitri? Question and one comment. Yeah. In terms of projectile vomiting, because again, every parent who comes to my office says that their kid is projectile vomiting. What is projectile vomiting? Like, have you seen it? And can you define it? Because we don't tend to see that as much in family primary care. And then, and, and after that, I'll just talk a bit about the rotavirus vaccine. But, but go ahead. Yeah, so that's a good question. And I asked that when I was in my, in my residency training as well, um, you know, because we had a case of pyloric stenosis. And, you know, one of the best definitions I got from a preceptor was the parents patting the infant, you know, on their shoulder and the vomit launches out of the child and hits a wall or a door and it doesn't even spurt on the back of the parent or, or there's minimal spurting on the back of the parent. And that has to be pretty consistent. Like they have to have a few good launches, not just a lucky shot. But again, you know, there's going to be a very wide range of true projectile vomiting, but it, it, it you know, should be launching as opposed to, you know, don't get overwhelmed just because, you know, there was more than the bib could handle or more than the burp towel or whatever. I can't, can't even remember anymore, um, you know, what those are. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's, you know, I think a lot of people tend to get thinking about projectile vomiting just because they're so overwhelmed by the volume of milk <laughs> and or food that the child seems to have produced um, in the vomitus. It's not about the volumes. It's about how far does whatever came out get launched and uh, i like that definition of it being able to hit walls uh at a distance away or, or launching like a meter yeah i wonder if we had the same perceptor because that that's a definition i remember for people who are a bit older if you've seen the exorcist uh, <laughs> that's the visual you should be looking at it's a quick comment yeah. uh, so the rotavirus vaccine has been associated within the first week of the of the dose of the initial dose uh, with uh, interception, a very small percentage. I think if you look at the statistics in one year, maybe four children in Canada will get interception because of uh, of this vaccine. And I, I think it's it ends up being uh, one in two hundred thousand. But I'm mentioning it because it is a risk a common risk in family medicine because we do give the rotavirus vaccine a lot. So it may be something you need to mention to the patient if you're giving the vaccine. Sorry, the parent, I should say, not to the patient. Yeah, I think that's that's worth mentioning. I, You know, as I reflect on my own cases of gastroenteritis amongst my four children, I'll take that chance of intussusception if it means fewer horrible days of gastro going through the household. But anyhow, let me quickly wrap up here. Intussusception is 
very tricky to miss when it's early on and the child looks fairly well. Intussusception is a telescoping of the bowel um, that leads initially to vomiting and intermittent abdominal pain, uh, but can have other trickier presentations like irritability, lethargy in an infant or a child. And the typical age ranges are three months to 36 months or three years, but uh, don't let that necessarily mislead you if you're looking at an older child or younger child who's having it. Um, it is serious. It is a medical emergency. If you're suspecting it um, and you really don't have an alternative diagnosis in front of you, then it is worthwhile picking up the phone and speaking to your pediatrics colleagues who are going to be able to guide you on further either reassessments. You know, you, you know, if you're in family practice and you got a child who's vomiting, I mean, that may be the first six hours of gastro before the diarrhea comes, you know, versus sending the child in or ordering additional tests. Uh, when you're doing the exam, don't be surprised if it's perfectly normal. Um, the classic findings aren't always there. You would probably get some benefit out of testing the stool for signs of blood. And then lastly, the one and only meaningful test is ultrasound. And if you're Again, looking to exclude intussusception, and you've worried enough about it to order, say, an intussusception series of x-rays, you probably ought to follow that up with ultrasound, unless, of course, you have found an alternative diagnosis. So with that said, I think I am going to wrap this up, as I've got a shift tomorrow and I have to go hunting more white whales. Uh, Dimitri, do you have any final comments at all? No, no, this is great. Thank you, Kevin. Um, it again, as we always come back to this, but you need to keep your differential broad. You're looking for the zebras or the, I guess the white whales. So g good luck finding your white whale, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. I'll keep you posted. All right. All right, guys. Take care. Bye.